Welcome to Illuminated by You, raising mental health awareness and reducing stigma. We're your hosts, Katherine Cottom and Joanne Phipps. Information provided through Illuminated by You's website, blog, and podcast are for informational purposes only designed for the general education of the consumer. It is not, nor is it intended to be, a substitute for medical advice. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have about a medical condition. Never disregard the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider or delay in seeking it because of anything you heard on Illuminated by You's podcast, read on Illuminated by You's website, or saw on any of Illuminated by You's social media sites. Hi guys! We're live on Facebook and Instagram again today, and we're also recording for our podcast for that to be up on the website and on SoundCloud and in iTunes. Um, So we've got all our bases covered. And today we're talking about Reed Wilson's book, our Reed Wilson's book, Don't Panic, Taking Control of Anxiety Attacks. We want to be really authentic and honest with you guys. So I have to tell you, neither one of us has been doing particularly well this month, and neither one of us actually read the whole book. However, I did read the whole book when I was about 19. It was very helpful to me. Um, It not only helped with my anxiety attacks, but it helped with uh, symptoms of obsessive compulsive disorder as well. So what we've decided we're going to do is go through, we picked some passages we want to talk about, and we're going to talk about those this time. Okay, so Joanne, what have you got to say about this book? Do you want to just read read our favorite? Yeah. And then discuss them? Let's do them sort of in order. Okay, well, I don't have any until page 65. Well, that's before mine, because mine's page 120. Perfect. Oh, nope, I have one on page 5. Just kidding. <laughs> so this talks about how I'm. It's it's a pretty long passage, and I'm just going to read it to you. A panic attack causes the fastest and most complex reaction known within the human body. It immediately alters the functioning of the eyes, several major glands, the brain, heart, lungs, stomach, intestines, pancreas, kidneys, and bladder, and the major muscle groups. Within the cardiovascular system, the heart increases its rates of contractions, the amount of blood it pumps with each contraction, and the pressure it exerts as blood is pumped into the arteries. The vessels that channel blood into the vital organs and skeletal muscles expand, increasing their blood flow, while the blood vessels in the arms, legs, and other less vital parts of the body begin to constrict, reducing blood flow in those areas. While this is taking place, your rate of respiration increases. The pupils dilate to improve distance vision. With the gastrointestinal system, all digestive activity is diminished. Metabolism, the conversion of foods into energy, is enhanced, and increased amounts of sugars and fatty acids are secreted into the bloodstream. It goes on to talk about how the subjective experience during a panic attack is different for every person, um, how some people feel like they might be dying, and how that's produced by your mental and emotional response to the physical sensations. And then there are a variety of symptoms listed that can happen during panic attacks that they talk about in different body parts. So the head, decreased blood flow to the brain caused by hyperventilation may result in a feeling of lightheadedness or dizziness as though your head is swimming. You may feel faint. 
The body. You begin to perspire, have hot and cold flashes, feel numb, or experience prickling or tingling. You feel as though you are whirling about, the sensation of vertigo. The whole body feels fatigued or depleted, like Joanne spoke of last week. The mind. You feel disoriented, confused, or unable to concentrate. You feel cut off or far away from your surroundings, which is called derealization. Your body can feel unreal as though you are in a dream, which is called depersonalization. You become irritable or short-tempered. And people have common fears of like fainting, going crazy, having a heart attack, dying, making a scene, becoming trapped. A lot of people are really afraid of their panic attacks because they're embarrassed by them, because there's such a stigma still surrounding them. Um, and so that's one of the things that happens. Your eyes flicker, twitch. You may have difficulty focusing on objects or objects might appear blurry. Your mouth and throat uh, might become dry and you might have difficulty swallowing and feel like there's a lump in your throat. Your heart rate might increase. Um, you're breathing quicker and more shallowly, which can lead to hyperventilation. You might feel like you can't take a full deep breath. Your stomach feels full of butterflies or tied knots or nauseated. And your muscles throughout your body feel tense, especially in your neck and shoulders. In essence, your body, which has been fairly trustworthy over the years, begins to mutiny. And if you experience panic attacks with any frequency, this lack of control slowly erodes your self-confidence and your self-esteem. You begin to restrict your activities in order to ward off these attacks. Familiar situations become threatening. So those are sort of like the ways that your body reacts when you have a panic attack. And also, um, what was I just about to say? The way that your brain reacts to the panic attack, which is to make you fear more panic attacks. Vicious cycle. Vicious cycle. I feel like you put me in a tough situation that's hard to follow. <laughs> oh, no, 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 no. I have shorter ones too, I promise. Um. Okay, so mine page is on page 65. So the way this book is broken up, it's kind of into different sections. So this one is under the agoraphobia and panic prone personality, um, under the... I can't make mistakes section. Um, it says, no one has to earn the right to be loved. We are already lovable. And then underneath, it gives you a few guidelines to help you on your way. And one of them that I really love says, refrain from calling yourself names or putting yourself down for your mistakes. Life is hard enough. No one deserves to be humiliated even silently by themselves. I really like the next one too, which has considered the idea that you deserve to be loved not solely for how much you have to give others, but simply for being a unique human being. I do too. I think that it's really hard when you don't have anxiety or mental illness to love yourself. Um, you know, when we first started this, we were talking about body image and eating disorders, and it's just like a constant mainstream of people telling us we're not good enough if we're not thin. And then if we're thin, we're not thin enough, we're not tall enough, we're not blonde, we're not blue-eyed, we're not this, we're not that. We're not enough. Yeah, we're never enough. And that's kind of what is constantly drilled into us, even from a very, very young age. And I think that it's so important to remember that if you're not rooting for yourself, then who is? Because at the end of the day... Besides your mom. Well, yeah, besides your mom. But at the end of the day, I mean... 
no one else is required to love you like you are required to love yourself. Yeah, absolutely. What page is your next? Okay, I've got 120. So this is on a section called the anatomy of panic. Um, And this, like the heading for this is winning through intimidation. The only way panic gains control over you is through psychological intimidation. The actual panic attacks last only an infinitesimal amount of time. Even if you had one panic episode every day and that episode lasted five minutes, you'd be experiencing panic for only one third of a percent of your life. And yet some people can become completely dominated by the repercussions of those moments of panic. Consider the concept of losing control. What does that mean to you? For most people, it means losing security, safety, protection. If we have a sense that we are out of control, we immediately, almost instinctively, begin searching for some small way to regain our equilibrium. Whether we have lost control of that burst water pipe or slippery roads have caused a momentary loss of steering or our young child has disappeared from sight in a shopping mall. And after you have lost control once, what do you do? You probably start checking all the pipes in the basement to make sure there aren't any more potential breaks. A few hours later, you might go back down those stairs just to check and see if everything's okay. After momentarily losing control on the highway, you may grip the steering wheel a little tighter, even chastise yourself for being overconfident and driving with one hand. Once you find your missing child in the mall, you probably keep a constant vigil over her whereabouts. When the mind fears loss of control, it begins to think more intensely about how to keep control in the future. Panic attacks, especially spontaneous attacks, stimulate the sense of being out of control. All of a sudden, you are not in charge of your body. Heart, lungs, throat, head, legs, all seem to have minds of their own. That is very frightening. Just the thought of it can make you anxious. And that is how it begins, how panic starts to invade your life. You fear that those uncomfortable physical symptoms might return yet again. And how bad will they get? Worse than before? You don't know. It is not knowing that provides to be proves to be a devastating weapon. Since I didn't manage the last attack, how can I possibly handle this one? And then there's the surprise attack. To add to your confusion, the attacks are not always consistent. You might get hit with symptoms at a restaurant one evening, have a problem only once over the next three times you go out for dinner, then on your fifth time out, begin to feel the same trap sensation again. It's like spinning the chamber of the pistol in Russian roulette. Mentally and even physically, you begin to brace yourself in anticipation. You become constantly on guard. For some, these fears translate into a desperate need not to feel trapped, because being trapped implies surrendering control. Staying in control is the primary objective. So that um, really speaks to me because I am a control freak. (laughs) And I think that's part of what happens to me when I go out in public or like last night I went out without River because I was going bowling with some friends and I knew that like legally the bowling alley couldn't keep her out and keep her from being with me while I bowled. But if they don't want regular shoes on their wood, they probably don't want dog claws. <laughs> so my parents agreed to watch her. And usually I get everywhere that I go like really early because I like to scope the place out. Like we talked so about So like last me, week. when yeah. I'm talking about going to class and I'm like, oh, the class starts at two and it's a 20 minute drive. So I'll leave her at noon. <laughs> like, Yeah, not that early for me, <laughs> but I, I get there pretty early. But this time I arrived like one minute late and I felt so bad because my friend had been waiting for like 30 minutes. But because because like I'm usually early and other reasons as well. But 
Um, I didn't want to be sitting alone in the restaurant without River with me, without my service dog with me, because I didn't know if I would have a panic attack. I didn't know how anxious I would get. And even like if I'm out somewhere, I always have Ativan with me. But if I start to have a panic attack or get really anxious, like that takes a while to kick in. I'm moving this closer so it's not blocking your face. Okay. Where's your next one? Um, page 149. Okay. My turn again? Yeah. So this is under the section, The Calming Response, under the heading, Taking Conscious Control. When you become anxious, your muscles automatically tense. That is the rule. The reverse is also true. When the muscles are not tensing, your mind cannot become anxious. In fact, to loosen and relax the muscles in an excellent method of activating the calming is an excellent method of activating the calming response. By the way, muscles don't actually relax. They're either not contracting or contracting to some degree. When I teach people calming techniques, I speak of relaxing the muscles to mean letting go of any muscle tension they notice. Unfortunately, most people who are afraid of a panic attack will physically tense their muscles and psychologically become anxious as a means of re remaining in control. They consider their tension to be a necessary way to stand on guard. But whenever you are highly tense and anxious, your ability to think logically is greatly diminished. The solution, quote unquote, of bracing yourself contributes to the problem. Reducing your muscle tension automatically reduces anxiety and invites the calming response. Your mind gets rid of all those useless negative thoughts so that you can concentrate on the situation at hand. Any of the relaxation techniques and meditations that are being taught these days actually increase your ability to think clearly and therefore increase your self-control. Which is what I'm going to talk about next. Um, over on page 169. Not yet. No? Just kidding. <laughs> Just kidding. Panic and breathing patterns are intimately related. This is under the breath of life. The less you understand about the process of respiration, the greater the power of panic. This is so because changes in breathing alone can produce over two dozen sensations within the body. If you're unaware of your ongoing breathing patterns and you don't realize that the mechanics of respiration alone can be solely responsible for those uncomfortable feelings, then you'll become frightened. If your fear includes being uncertain whether your heart or lungs are functioning properly, your alarm will take on panic proportions. People who have heart or lung damage, such as from a myocardial infarction or a chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, may experience this kind of panic when they begin to have trouble breathing or think that they are having another heart attack. Other panic-prone people who notice symptoms and interpret them as, I can't breathe or I'm having a heart attack, I'm going to die, will immediately feel the effects of panic. These thoughts automatically and instantly switch on the body's emergency response. That passage really spoke to me because um, I've talked about this before, but in 2015, I went on this awesome trip to the UK with my friend Tiffany, and it was amazing. It was wonderful. It was a really long flight, and the flight on the way home was really long, and my legs got really swollen and really painful, and I got home, and three days later, um, I had a small pulmonary embolism. So my head started hurting really bad. I got really dizzy. Uh, I couldn't see, my legs hurt, my chest hurt, I was having difficulty breathing, I was like sitting on a chair and my parents were holding me up while we waited on the ambulance to get to my house. And it was because I had like a six inch blood clot in my leg that I didn't know about, 
even though I had gotten up and walked on the plane like every two hours. So FYI, side note, walk <laughs> when you're get up and walk. Stretch your legs. Get the special socks. Get the special compression socks if you're going on a long flight. Um, But for months after that, I would have multiple panic attacks a day. And like every time that I would start having trouble breathing, it was just me being really anxious. Or like my chest would hurt, which is a symptom of anxiety. But I would think that I was dying. I had a leg cramp the other day, and the first thing I thought about was, what if what happened to Catherine is happening to me? And then I, like, couldn't breathe, and I was like, it's happening. Like, I'm going to die because no one else was here. Yeah. Yeah. So, for months, I kept having multiple panic attacks a day because, like, I had this health problem. So, health problems can also cause panic attacks. Is it my turn now? Nope. (sighs) Almost. (laughs) This is page 162. Under natural breathing. And it says, give this exercise your full attention. Number one, gently and slowly inhale a normal amount of air through your nose, filling only your lower lungs. Number two, exhale easily. Three, continue this slow, gentle breathing with a relaxed attitude, concentrating on filling only the lower lungs. And it says the reason for that is because if you take too many deep breathing breaths in a row instead of slow, gentle breaths, you'll produce a sensation of lightheadedness, which is the same feeling that people get when they hyperventilate. But if you take like three slow, deep breaths, that'll be okay. You just don't want to keep doing the breathing. But the one that I like to do fills up your lower lungs, then your upper lungs, and then you hold it for three counts, and then you release for the three counts. The one that you did when we went into Hobby Lobby. Yeah. So in, two, three, hold, two, three, out, two, three. That's my favorite one. Now it's your turn. Yay, wonderful. Okay. For a page or so. Yeah, I'm on page 169. It's under releasing tensions and what can you learn from meditation. Um, First of all, you don't have to be a skilled meditator to gain the benefits from meditation. Um, But consider that during panic, we could become consumed by our momentary experience. We notice the unpleasant sensations in our body and become frightened by our interpretation of those meanings. I'm going to faint. I won't be able to breathe. We notice our surroundings and become frightened by how we interpret what we see. There's no support for me here. This is a dangerous place right now. We reinforce these sensations and thoughts by conjuring up terrifying images of ourselves not surviving the experience. Um, We will not develop the skill by waiting until our next panic to practice. By then it's too late because the panic has control. The best time to learn a basic skill is during non-anxious periods. Then we introduce the new skill gradually over time into the problem situation. Here are the valuable learnings you can glean from meditative practice. And I'm just going to touch on a couple of them. Um, Meditation is a form of relaxation training. You then just sit in a comfortable position and breathe in a calm, effortless way. Kind of like what Catherine. I'm so bad at it. (laughs) I can't sit still and not. Like, I, I always think about stuff. Mind races. Yeah, I think that it's important to also, on that note, like, when I first started meditating, I was horrible at it. I would, like, sit down, and I was, like, a squirrel or something with, like, a piece of tinfoil gun, and I was, like, two seconds in, I wonder what I'm going to have for dinner. Two seconds after that, I really have to pee. Five seconds after that, God, this is boring. What am I doing? Yes, it's so, so boring. It's completely normal. 
And there's a lot of great apps out there that will do like guided meditations. Which I do like those. I like them a lot better because it's kind of like having someone to listen to instead of just like sitting there awkward like i feel like this isn't like a human experience like we're supposed to be like doing things moving talking experiencing and not just like i mean how do you make your mind go completely but now i can meditate on my own for about 10 or 15 minutes depending on um the day um you learn to quiet your mind to slow down the racing thoughts and to tune in to more subtle internal cues, um, you acquire the ability to self-observe. You practice the skill of focusing your attention on one thing at a time and doing it so in a relaxed, deliberate fashion. You master the ability to notice when your mind wanders from a task, to direct your mind back to the task, and to hold it there, at least for brief periods of time. I think that that is the thing that I appreciate the most from meditating is I've become very present of my anxiety and I know that I'm going to have a panic attack before I actually like start having a panic attack. Like there's just that moment Mm -hmm. where I'm very much aware that if I don't get it together, like that's the rabbit hole that I'm going to go down. So um, while you were talking about that, I was just looking up like the quote unquote best meditation apps guided meditation apps and i don't know if you're familiar with any of these but i wanted to list a few for people watching and listening there's buddhify calm calm is a really good one and so is headspace headspace and headspace is free and so is calm mind body connect which is free the mindfulness app which costs a dollar 99 meditation timer pro Omvana, which is free. Relax Melodies, which is free. Smiling Mind, which is free and is a nonprofit, so that's kind of cool. Take a Break, which is free. Sattva with two T's, which is free. And those are the ones that Healthline lists as like the best guided meditation apps. Perfect. Um. Through meditation, you desensitize yourself to whatever is on your mind. You're able to notice your personal fears, concerns, or worries, and at the same time, step back and become detached from them. That's what I got. Okay. Um, There's this chapter on how to inoculate yourself against panic, the eight attitudes of recovery. And I just want to go through a couple of those. I'm going to read the list of them and then give a little bit more information about a couple. The expected attitude is, I can't let anyone know. The healing attitude is, I am not ashamed. The expected attitude is, panic is evil, bad, the enemy. Healing attitude is, what can I learn as a student of panic? Expected attitude is, I want to avoid the symptoms. Healing attitude is, I want to face the symptoms to gain skills. The expected attitude is, I must relax right now. The healing attitude is, it's okay to be anxious here. The expected attitude is, I must stay on guard. The healing attitude is, I won't guard myself against anxiety. The expected attitude is, this is a test. The healing attitude is, this is practice. The expected attitude is, I must be certain that there is no risk. The healing attitude is, I can tolerate uncertainty. The expected attitude is, this had better work. And the healing attitude is, it's okay if it doesn't work. 
So the first one was, I can't let anyone know. And the attitude you want to have is, I'm not ashamed. Um, and it says, it's hard to let others know of our problems. First, we can feel embarrassed to admit that we don't have our lives together as well as we fantasize that they have theirs. Then, if our problems are lasting a while, we don't want others to get fed up with our complaints. Or we might explain what's bothering us only to have others say, I don't get it, I don't know what you mean. Or worse yet, what's the big deal? There are at least two other reasons to be secretive when the problem is panic attacks. The first is the stigma around mental health problems. Think how easy it is for employees to call in sick because they have the flu or even a migraine headache. But who's willing to say, I'm having a bout of depression that's going to keep me out for a couple days? You can tell your boss you have to miss that cross-country trip tomorrow because your grandmother died. It takes more strength to admit that you're afraid of flying. A mental health problem can be seen as a mark of disgrace. Second, failure to control panic can heighten our own feelings of shame and low self-esteem. Not being able to travel in the same circles as our peers or perform tasks that seem so simple to others and were once simple for us, it's easy to see how that wears down our sense of self-worth. And as our sense of self-worth diminishes, we become even more susceptible to the influences of panic. So this is talking about some thoughts that you might have. If you have that, I can't let anyone know attitude. And it says, I'm inferior to others. I'm not worth much. I'm disgusted with myself. I'm weak. I should be stronger. I shouldn't be feeling this way. I should already be better. I'm hopeless. And um, under accepting who I am and the, like, I am not ashamed category, which is where you hopefully want to get to, I'm okay just the way I am. I am lovable and capable. I'm an important person. I'm already a worthy person. I don't have to prove myself. And then it's okay to say no to others. It's good for me to take time for myself. I don't have to be perfect to be loved. Everything is practice. I don't have to test myself. Then there's the one that said, I want to avoid the symptoms, whereas the healing attitude is, I want to face the symptoms to gain skills. Another common expression in the martial arts is, love the mat. During the learning process, you'll find yourself again and again lying flat out on the mat after your opponent gets the best of you. By embracing challenging experiences as a necessary part of your training, you reduce your resistance to the learning process. Love the mat is a winning attitude of the student who knows that she doesn't always get to be in control. The only way to get the best of panic is to face the symptoms directly and practice your skills. And one of my therapists at one point told me, like, you have to use your panic attacks as a learning experience because you can't really practice for a panic attack when one's not happening. Yeah. Which is what you were talking about earlier, but... If you're not experiencing like the heightened like the heightened respiratory rate and the perspiration and the tensing of the muscles, like if your muscles aren't tense, how are you gonna untense them? Yeah. So practicing during a panic attack um, is what's necessary, really. And then I the last one I want to talk about in this section is the idea that I must be certain that there's no risk. Um, as opposed to the healing attitude of, I can tolerate uncertainty. Most problems with anxiety relate to a fear of uncertainty. My educated guess is that brain chemistry of about 20% of the population leads them to have a more difficult time than the average person in tolerating uncertainty regarding risk. So the person with panic attacks, phobias, or social anxieties may ask questions like, can I know for certain that I won't have any symptoms? Can I know for certain that I won't have to leave, that I won't feel trapped, that this isn't a heart attack, that I won't die on that plane, 
that I won't cause an embarrassing scene, that people won't stare at me, that I won't have a panic attack. If we look at a different anxiety problem, a obsessive compulsive disorder, we find the same kinds of questions. Can I know for certain that this object is clean, that I won't get contaminated if I touch the ground, that my family will be safe, that I didn't run someone over, that I unplugged that iron, that I won't kill my child? If it is true that some people's brains cause them to feel strong yet inappropriate need for certainty, confronting that problem involves disrupting those demanding thoughts. It involves confronting them con consistently and directly every day to produce the change we want. This is where your new attitude comes in. You must find ways to accept risk and tolerate uncertainty. There is an interesting thing about many therapeutic interventions designed to help you control anxiety. Most actually make you more anxious at first. This one, giving up the requirement for complete confidence in the outcome, is a good example. For instance, you begin to feel that pain in your chest that shoots down your arm. Now you're saying, I'm going to apply all my skills as though this is a panic attack. I'm not going to act as though this is a heart attack. Do you think 100% of you is going to agree to this plan? No way. Some part of your mind is still going to feel scared because, try as you might, some part of you will still be worried about a heart attack. What I kind of want to say about that is, like, but what if it is a heart attack? Yeah, I mean, I feel like there's no, I mean, unless you happen to have, like, a hospital in your home with the testing facilities to, you know what I mean? Like, but one, like, one of the problems that happened for me when I had the small pulmonary embolism um, and they couldn't find, like, they did scans, and they couldn't find it when they did x-rays and CT scans and stuff. But all the doctors I've spoken to since, based on the symptoms, were like, you had a pulmonary embolism. It was just a small one they couldn't find. Yeah. Um, but one of the problems was my dad called 911, and they asked if I'd ever had anxiety or panic attacks before, and he said yes. And they took a... they took a while to get to my house. Yeah, because they're thinking, oh, well, she's just having... It's kind of like... When I did work for a fire department, it's kind of like people who are frequent flyers, we call them. So it's people who, a lot of times, they live alone. They might not have any family. They don't really have any friends that they can talk to. And they might have, like, a health problem like diabetes or, you know... And so we call them frequent flyers because they call often and they just want, like, compassion. And they just want, like, someone to come. And, like, that's, like, their only interaction with other people. And it's hard to be in the mindset where, like, if you get a call and you get dispatched to this house and you're thinking, like, oh, like, here's our weekly trip or whatever. It's hard to remember to be compassionate and to understand I definitely took the battery out of that it's okay <laughs> and to um remember that just because someone has anxiety or just because they have a panic attack doesn't mean that somehow they're shielded from having like an actual medical emergency just like someone who is a frequent flyer and calls because oh, I forgot to take my insulin, um, you know, like, can you give it to me? That doesn't mean that all of a sudden they're, like, immune from actually going into a diabetic coma or having, like, heart failure or something more serious. So right. it's very important. Yeah, and so 
because they took their time getting there, I was like, oh, well, like, maybe this isn't such a big deal. Like, maybe it's not that serious. Yeah. And I get in the ambulance and I'm like strapped to the gurney for them to get me into the ambulance. They get me into the ambulance. We're in my neighborhood still. And I was like, well, I said to the guy, well, the siren's not on. Like, I can't be doing that bad. (laughs) And not three seconds later, that siren turns on and we start flying through my neighborhood. And my dad said that that ambulance ride was very anxiety provoking for him because people, cars like wouldn't move out of the way. So it was bad for him too. But they realized once they got me in the ambulance and hooked up to the machines that it was not a panic attack. Well, my sister, when she was little, she fell and cracked her head open. But when my mom called 911, she was like, you know, my two or three-year-old at the time, she had a fall. And it was the same thing. I was like, oh, well, you know, two or three-year-old, they have a fall. They fall all the time. They're resilient. And my mom got tired of waiting. And she, like, just started driving to the hospital. And on the way there, she passed a cop that was sitting at, like, a speed trap or whatever. Mm-hmm. And, like, pulled my sister out of the car. And she's, like, bleeding all over her face and stuff. And she's like, I called 911. But they didn't, like come in a timely fashion like can you help us Mm -hmm. and it was like the fact again where it's like someone thought it was minor Mm -hmm. and it wasn't yeah so me so like in this instance like probably you're not dying that's just my anxiety (laughs) but we just like a 90 percent chance that it's but we just wanted to touch on the fact that there are medical problems that mimic panic panic attacks that are not panic attacks. Yeah, I'm pretty sure almost every day I have a moment where I'm like, I'm dying. Like, I have some horrible debilitating disease because I get, like, a side stitch. Or, like, I sneeze, like, three times in a row and somehow, like, I'm allergic to life and I'm dying. <laughs> <laughs> what, are you, what page are you on to next? Uh, 224. Okay, I'm over on 202 um, under your mind's observer um there's usually some reason why we get tense or anxious during a time when there's no actual threat either the events of the past remain with us or we are anticipating events in the future um and then skip over to another page on 204 do you see the vicious cycle your solutions quote-unquote creates your own problem you pay close attention to your physical sensations. You become suspicious, like we just talked about, of a minor sensation. <laughs> like, you get hard of breathing. Like, the other day when we recorded, I was anxious for no reason. And had we not been recording a podcast, like, I probably would have started freaking out, thinking, like, I'm having a stroke, I'm about to have a heart attack. Like, is my face okay? Can I move my fingers and my hands? Does my left arm hurt? I check for strokes all the time. And it's really horrible. Like, I have... A medical background. I've had emergency medical training, and that makes it so much worse. Because all of a sudden, I'm like, "Can I wiggle my fingers and my toes? Stick my tongue out?" And yeah. Mm-hmm. Can I? Is my speech slurred? And I'm like recording myself on my phone, but then I'm like, if I'm having a stroke, I'm gonna play it back, and I'm not. Gonna, yeah. You know what I mean? Um, I smile into the mirror, and see if <laughs> one side of my face is drooping. Uh, number three, you interpret that sensation to mean the beginning of an anxiety attack or some serious disturbance. Number four, your brain turns on the emergency response to save you. Number five, you vow to be even more sensitive next time. And then number six, you're back to the beginning of you pay close attention to your physical sen- sensations. So it's this vicious cycle. Like anxiety 
panic attacks. It's just this vicious cycle. Like, every time I go through one, when I get done and I'm calm and I'm back to quote-unquote normal, I'm always like, that was so dumb. I overreacted. That was completely unnecessary. Next time I'm going to know and it's not going to be the same. And then every single time, again, it's I'm freaking out. I'm going to die. There's nothing that anyone can do to help me. And it's just this vicious cycle. It's like a snowball. It talks in this chapter about the different types of observers. Um, Like the worried observer, the critical observer, the negative observer, the independent observer. But what you want, apparently, is the supportive observer. Um, I'm on page 224. Are you before or after that? Okay. So the supporter of, of, supportive observer. What qualities must this new filter have? During panic-provoking moments, the typical person needs several important resources. Number one, a sense of choice. You need to feel free to move, free to change your direction. You want to know that you won't be trapped and won't be controlled by someone else or by some event. The greater the freedom you sense, the more comfortable you feel. Number two, a sense of safety. You need to feel protected from harm, safe to pursue your task. You need to feel secure in your surroundings. As you feel increasingly safe, you may feel more at ease. Number three, a sense of support. You need to feel stable and secure. You need to feel respected, nurtured, and cared for. You need to feel good about the choice you make. The more supported you feel, the easier it is to try new activities. Number four, a sense of confidence. You need to believe in yourself, have faith that you will make it. You need to hope for and expect the best. You need to trust in your own abilities to believe that you will succeed. The more confident you feel, the more power you have over your actions. In essence, you need to develop within you a new observer, a supportive, confident part of you that offers you a number of safe choices. I call this part the supportive observer. The supportive observer reminds you of your freedom and choices, gives you permission to feel safe, supports all your efforts, invites you to feel confident, trusts you and lets you trust yourself, expects a positive future, points out your successes, looks around you for support, believes that you can change, knows that there's always more than one option in decisions, and focuses more on solutions than on problems. Now, you don't just get to say, oh, I really want my supportive observer to be working today. It doesn't, <laughs> like, you have to work at it. Um, I Let's see, how many years have I been in therapy? Fifteen. Fifteen. And I worked with this book in... 2008 2009 I'm still not there to where this works all the time obviously like we talk constantly about how I'm not here um and like I've had more diagnoses since the time that I worked on this book my diagnoses at the time were uh, major depressive disorder generalized anxiety disorder and obsessive compulsive disorder and now it's bipolar one and generalized anxiety disorder and panic attacks um and I had panic attacks back then, too. But, like, still, I'm not, like, this is something you really have to work for. And I think that it's important to remember that your, even just, like, your level of anxiety, your approach to your anxiety, it is constantly changing with where you are in life. Like, mm-hmm. my anxiety, my panics, everything 10 years ago is completely different now because then I was... A child? Yeah, I was, well, no, yeah, I was a child, kind of, 
Um, we were children 10 years yeah, ago. Yeah, well, legally, no. <laughs> so old. Um, but yeah, we were getting ready to graduate high school. I was in a horrible relationship. Um, and now, great relationship, but I'm married now, which is different. I'm a mother now, which is completely different. And there was this huge shift. So I used to be anxious about myself. What if I die? Oh my gosh, I'm dying. What my parents, this, that, and the other, where now I'm, what if something happens to my child? What if something happens to, you know, Josh? What if, you know, like it's less my anxiety, my panic attacks are less surrounding myself and even when they do involve myself even when I am oh my gosh what if something happens to me it's what happens to my child then how does my child grow up without a mother so it's very important to understand and be aware of the fact that just because something works today doesn't mean that it's going to work tomorrow if you go get a new job you get fired you start a new you know you start going to college whatever every shift that you make in your life there's repercussions for your mental wellness as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't just want to tell you, like, here's how you should be. You can't be that. <laughs> here, here are some ways you can stop negative thoughts, and that will help you to become a better supportive observer. Listen for your worried, self-critical, or hopeless thoughts. Decide that you want to stop them. Are the, Think, like, are these thoughts helping me or hurting me? Reinforce your decision through supportive comments. Like, I can let go of these thoughts. Mentally yell, stop. You could snap a rubber band on your wrist. You could, um, I don't know. What are some other, like, mental stops? Like, snapping snapping the rubber band on your wrist or your hair tie on your wrist. That's, like, my normal. That's your go-to? Yeah. Yeah, that's mine, too. And then begin the calming counts, which he talked about earlier, which is, like, counting... I think t- to like a hundred. Some okay, so which is really taxing. Like <laughs> some some parts of this book are really great, and some parts are a little overwhelming, and like. But I think that's like everything. Like I know with my anxiety, like I'll read a book, and some parts are like really great, and then other parts I'm like, oh my gosh, I can't read this. Like you know, I'm freaking out. Like right now, you hear that? It's too quiet. Exactly. And so this whole time I'm like, what's my kid doing? Did he climb off the window? I wonder if he's still okay. I wonder if somehow, like, he got hurt and we didn't hear it. And also this book was uh, published in 1996, just so you know. Yeah. So it doesn't account. Oh, one of the things I do when I get anxious is scroll through my phone. Oh, yeah. Which is probably not, like, a great thing. I try really hard to, when I'm anxious, I try really hard to stay off of my phone because, like, it is a trap. For me, like yeah. I'll see someone post something stupid on social media, and it's like I can't not. Yeah, you can't I ignore can't it. Help myself. <laughs> um, this details the difference between the different types of the observers, and so I want to, or just like the regular observer and the supportive observer. The observer. I keep repeating the same thoughts in my head about tonight. I'm scared. I've decided to go, but I keep thinking about how to avoid it. Supportive observer. These thoughts are only making me more scared. They aren't helpful. I need to stop them. Action. Mentally yells, stop. Sits down for a minute and does 10 calming counts. So that must not mean counting to 100. 
It must be like a different exercise. Observer. Now that I am quieter, I notice how tense my stomach is. I'm still scared. Supportive observer. Probably I'll be a little anxious all day. It's okay to be somewhat tense since I'm taking on a challenge tonight. I need to pace my day and keep myself fairly busy until it's time to get ready. That's a good way to take care of myself. I also want some support tonight so I don't feel like I'm going through this alone. Um, and this is talking about attending a gathering of friends. So I'm a I totally... terrible, supportive observer. I'm like, get your shit together, girl. <laughs> <laughs> Action. Makes a list of the few of the few worthwhile projects for the day that require some concentration. Shares concerns with a supportive person who will be attending the party. Monitors stomach tensions periodically throughout the day using the calming breath to relax the stomach muscles when needed. And I, like, gatherings of friends are sometimes a nightmare for me. I wouldn't know anything. About <laughs> um, so there's this, I, I'm in, you've heard me talk about the meetup group. I'm in a meetup group that uh, goes to see movies, which is awesome. And the people in it are great. We're going to see Guardians of the Galaxy on May 5th. And like I, I bought my ticket immediately when we posted the event and posted in our group, like where you can post comments I got seat E9 or whatever seat I got because usually we post that and then everyone else buys their tickets and we all sit together. Well, people didn't buy their tickets except for like one person that I don't know that sat next to me. No. Yeah. So I go and I look a couple days ago, a few days ago. You're going to buy another at the ticket, tickets. I couldn't because there is a diamond all around me of sold out seats of people who I probably do not know who may or may not be with my group and i'm not <laughs> like that's gonna be an ativan night i can't even like so right now there's me you josh and Rylan. like that is enough for me and josh and Rylan like aren't even in the room with us and it's i have a hard time sympathizing with you because i would never do <laughs> like no um I have one more, but it's not told 260. Oh, well, go ahead, because my last one's on 272. Okay, so this is um, talking about experience, the greatest teacher. Hey, me too. And it's talking about creating short-term tasks and goals. And I actually picked this in honor of where you were a while back in your life. Wonderful. Short-term goal. Comfortably drive a two-mile loop on the roads around my house. That's too much. <laughs> short-term tasks. Map out a two-mile... So you do the short-term tasks before you do the short-term goal. Map out a two-mile loop on the roads around my house. We could do that. You could do that. You're capable of doing that. Number two. With a supportive person driving, ride as a passenger on this loop, noticing all the opportunities to pull over to the side of the road or to turn off on a side road, all the gas stations, stores, driveways, and telephone booths that are accessible to me, which is what you and your mom will be doing when she comes and you guys go to AB Tech. Yeah, aside from telephone booths, because those aren't a thing anymore. Yeah, those aren't a thing. <laughs> You're right. I saw a payphone the other day. I don't remember where it was, but I like had to do like a triple take. I was like... <laughs> <laughs> do those even... I, I wonder if they work. It did, because someone was using it. I was like, what up? <laughs> Three, drive this loop during a non-rush hour time with a supportive person as passenger. Four, drive this loop during a rush hour time with a supportive person as passenger. Five, drive this loop during a non-rush hour time with a supportive person driving another car directly behind me. 
Six, drive this loop during a non-rush hour time with a supportive person driving another car, several cars behind me. Seven, repeat step five during rush hour. Eight, repeat step six during rush hour. Nine, drive alone with my support person waiting to meet me at a stopping point halfway along the route. Then have my support person leave before me and wait for me at the end of the loop. 10. Drive the entire loop alone while my support person waits at the finish. 11. Drive the entire loop alone while my support person waits by a telephone at another location. Future short-term goals. Repeat all these steps for different loops and for longer distances until I can confidently drive any distance I desire. So I would ask you to turn to page 261 and just dog-ear it for me. Oh, but I'm already driving every day. Oh. Yeah, like a long way. Oh, good. Like, I drive over to, like, Fletcher Park every day. Oh, good. And then I drive over to this park every day. Good. I got your back. Good. <laughs> yeah, when I thought that I was going to have to go to that class every day, and with taking Rylan to school every day, I made it a point that when so I woke up. So you basically did this. Yeah, every day when I woke up, I had to go out, and I had to drive for at least, I think I figured it out. It's going to take me like 25 minutes to drive to class. So I had to drive consistently for 25 minutes. But I would like to point out that I think having Rylan with me actually makes me more anxious because it's just the fact that like I couldn't stop and just like run out of the car and stuff. Yeah. So. It'll be helpful. Yeah. That he'll be here at home. Yeah. Good. But I don't have to take the class anymore. So. Yeah. But well, you will eventually. Right yeah. In another year. So. We're on 273? Yeah, 272. Again, under experience, the greatest teacher. Write down your worries. Another way to end your worries is to write them down. Carry a pencil and a small pad with you to your practice session. When you begin those noisy worries, write down your exact thoughts. Don't write down the theme. Write down every single repetition of every single worried thoughts. Now, what's the benefit here? When you worry, you tend to repeat the same content over and over again, right? When you write down the worries, you recognize how repetitive and senseless they are. This perspective quiets the noise. After a while, you will probably experience the task of writing all the content verbatim as a chore. That's how the writing will help you. After several extended writing sessions, you are more likely to say, Okay, I am worrying. Now I can either go through all the bother of writing all these worthless thoughts, or I can just stop worrying right now. And there are two exercises that I've had different therapists suggest to me related to this. One of them was to have a worry box. So I had like a shoe box and I covered it in paper and cut out a little hole on the top. Like a kid's Valentine's like Day. Like a kid's Valentine's Day thing. And I would write down my worries on a sheet of paper and fold them and put them in the box. And once they were in the box, I was not allowed to worry about them anymore. And the second thing was that my therapist now told me that I have like and I like my bad because I haven't actually given it a chance. <laughs> um, it may work, but she told me that I need to designate a specific time for worrying every day. Like give uh, myself. I don't think I could do that. Cause then I'd always be dreading like, you know what I mean? Well, no, because by the time that you like, you set the time for like the, the evening, but not too close to before you go to bed. So like 5 p.m. or whatever. And you set like 30 like minutes. 12 hours before we go to bed. <laughs> that is. But, but you set it for before you go to bed, but not right before you go to bed. And um, so like 7.30, we'll say. Even though I don't go to sleep till like midnight or 1. Um, but you don't want it to be right before you go to bed is my point. Because then you'll have worried thoughts. Yeah. Your head. 
But you you start worrying about something during the day and you think, oh, nope, like I'll write that down. I'll worry about that during my worry time. By the time you get to that worry time and you're like, okay, I can look at all my worries. I can spend 30 minutes worrying about them. You look at them and it's like, I don't give a shit about this anymore. I think that the idea of like, oh, at 7.30 I'm going to have shit to worry about is what would cause me to like be anxious all day is like, Shit, I hope 7.30 never comes. I hope that today, 7.30 just doesn't exist and I don't have to worry. I think it's a really good idea. I just have not given it a shot yet. I'll let y'all know how it goes. I have a don't give a shit box. It's kind of like your worry box. You put stuff in there and then you don't ever worry about it again. Um, also in this book, just in case you're interested in reading these sections of it, are sections on the use of medications, the fear of being seen, how to face social anxieties, and achieving comfortable flight, which I know, yeah, that, that might be a section you actually want to read. Um, our job would be easier if we only had to address panic in its simplest form, but that is really the case in our complex world. As you learned in part one, other psychological as well as physical disorders can complicate panic, and the underlying causes can vary according to genetic makeup, childhood experiences, and events in adulthood. Addressing panic sometimes means that we must take a number of additional variables into account. The best example of this complexity and its cost to our society is the more than 25 million Americans, which was in 1996, so it's probably more now, who are either anxious or phobic about traveling on commercial airlines. One out of every six adults is afraid to fly. Some feel uncomfortable in tight spaces and only feel relaxed in wide-body aircraft. Some get nervous during takeoff and cloudy weather or while in choppy air. They cope by trying to distract themselves by taking a few stiff drinks or just toughing it out as white knucklers. Others stop flying altogether. They take the train, drive, or just stay close to home. I am an anxious flyer, but I just, uh, I have benzodiazepines, which are a class of anti-anxiety medication. I have Ativan and Clonopin, so if I'm going to fly, I just take one of those. Because and I just really don't helps. fly. I mean, we don't really go anywhere. It's where we're, And then the other thing is just, I feel like with having a small child at this point, it's just so much easier. Well, maybe not now that he's a little bit bigger, but in the beginning, it's just so much easier to drive. Because, like, you need, kids are a lot of freaking work, and they need a lot of stuff. Like, when Rylan was four months old, we went back up to Philadelphia if I had flown, oh my god, I would have had to buy like the whole plane because he had so much stuff that we had to take with him. So I feel like that's been kind of nice that I've had the excuse of let's not fly because Rylan has a lot of stuff. But if it comes to a point where you do need to fly, like to Texas to visit your mom, you could uh, read that chapter. Or you could drive. I would just be like, mommy, come see me. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, that's all I have on this book for today. Yeah, that's all I have. Don't panic, y'all. Don't panic. Actually, I want to talk for a second about the title of the book because I think it's a really poor choice, actually. Because when someone is panicking... The worst thing to do is, calm down. Don't panic. panic. So don't actually tell anyone to don't (laughs) panic. Um, Because it's like, if I could be calm, like if I could just calm down, then I would. Instead, use the strategies in the book to not panic. Thanks so much for joining us, guys. Have a great day. In May, we'll be discussing service dogs, emotional support animals, and therapy dogs, meditation and mindfulness, and yoga. 
Our book of the month for May is The Secret Power of Yoga by Nishala Joy Devi. Please have it read by Friday, May 26th in order to listen to our discussion about it. Our goals for Illuminated by You include raising awareness and reducing stigma of mental illness, providing information for those affected by mental health struggles firsthand and their family and friends, and providing information to the general public who wish to be better informed about mental illness and the effects it can have on people and systems. Illuminated by You is produced for your enjoyment and more information about it can be found at www.illuminatedbyyou.com. Come back often and feel free to add the podcast to your favorite RSS feed or iTunes. It's also available at soundcloud.com slash illuminatedbyyou. You can follow us on Twitter at illuminatedbyyou, at joe underscore liz with six z's underscore yoga, at Catherine Cottom and at River the Wonderdale, and on Facebook by searching for Illuminated by You. All links are available on the website. The intro, outro, and transition music used in this and all episodes is Looking Back by Lou Rosevear.